This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel for the New Books Network. I am your host, Dr. Arnab Datta Roy, an assistant professor of world literature and post-colonial theory at Florida Gulf Coast University. Today, I have the great pleasure and honor to welcome Professor Torsha Ghoshal, who will be speaking about her fascinating book, Out of Mind, Mode, Mediation, and Cognition in 21st Century Narrative, Ohio State University Press, 2021. Before we begin the interview, I would like to briefly introduce Torsha to our audience. Torsha Ghoshal is the author of an experimental novella, novella, uh, Open Couplets, Yoda Press, and the Book of Criticism, Out of Mind, which is the topic of our interview today. She has edited Global Perspectives on Digital Literature, Rutledge 2023, and co-edited Fictionality and Multimodal Narratives, University of Nebraska Press 2023. Her fiction, essays, and translations have also appeared in Massachusetts Review, The Brooklyn Review, Berkeley Fiction Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, Literary Hub, Bustle, and elsewhere. She is Associate Professor of English at California State University, Sacramento. Welcome to this podcast, Tosha, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. Thank you, Arnav, for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about Out of Mind. Awesome. Uh, so let's let's get into it. Uh, so can you please tell us a little bit about your journey as an academic? Uh, what inspires you to do what you do uh, as a scholar, as an academic, as a creative writer, and as an educator? Um, well, I'm the kind of academic who hasn't ever, even temporarily, uh, worked outside academia. So my entire life's journey has been an academic journey. I think at the most fundamental level, I'm driven by curiosity. I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but it's just true. Um, My parents were voracious readers of Bangla and Hindi literature, and um, they were also good storytellers, particularly my mother was a good storyteller. Uh, We also had this family tradition of watching movies and or plays every weekend. So stories across media were very much a part of my life during the growing up years. And I think when in literature classes in school, I began to see that uh, you could uh, examine stories and learn much more from them than what seems apparent on a first reading. I was really intrigued. However, uh, having said that, uh, I was also interested in physics and coding and history, so a bunch of different disciplines. Um, 
Ultimately, the fact that I started writing freelance articles and features for various newspapers, um, and that required a kind of focus on language, ability to craft sentences, but also the ability to offer insights into culture, to find stories in culture. I think that directed me toward literary studies. Um, I initially started studying literature imagining I would be a journalist. I do still write freelance articles from time to time, but I'm certainly not a journalist. Um, and as I continue to study literature, um, I have discovered that I have a very deep interest in aesthetics, ideas around aesthetics, literary form, craft, and all of these different things. Um, so in that sense, because uh, you know, my interest in literature came from essentially the practice of writing. Um, I have never been able to draw a line between what uh, is considered literary studies and the practice of creative writing. Because the kinds of articles I would be writing way back as an undergrad student, they were essentially feature articles tapping into certain subcultures that I was personally interested in or got exposed to, um, given my, uh, you know, subject position. Um, so in that sense, I have always thought of literature and writing together, mm -hmm. and I continue to do that. Um, and I do that in my work as a researcher, scholar, but also as a teacher. So, you know, I teach both a course like advanced composition at California State University, but I also teach, which, which requires a certain kind of argumentative writing, but I also teach something like um, creative writing with a focus on maybe nonfiction. And both of these things, I think, uh, require skills that are very much in dialogue with each other. That is awesome. And that kind of also explains some of the interdisciplinary focus that's very much a part of this book that we will be talking about today, Out of Mind. Um, but I do have a follow-up question. Uh, so there's often this idea that academic writing is fundamentally different from uh, creative writing. So um, what is your take on this view? Uh, is your approach to creative writing fundamentally different from academic writing or is there some sort of compatibility? That's a great question. Uh, I think the way I approach writing, any form of writing is, uh, you know, by thinking of writing as communication. Um, I am writing something because I want to say something to someone. So, you know, it, it I, that communication model is very much a part of my way of thinking. Um, I do think that the purpose of academic writing and the purpose of certain genres of creative writing might be different. Um, so when I'm writing an academic essay, analyzing a piece of literature, the purpose of that uh, is perhaps very different from, um, you know, when I'm writing a short story. Um, at the same time, at a fundamental level, I think good writing or writing that moves me uh, when I am reading writing, that has a bit of creativity or uh, uh, what I would like to call something like creative insights. Very, very good critical writing, according to me, is full of creative insights and a kind of clarity. Um, and it and that applies, I think, to creative writing as well, because great short stories or great novels, according to me, are not essentially made out of, you know, really great scenes alone. They are made great by the fact that, you know, um, sentences and paragraphs come together to reveal something about life, about the world or the human condition, uh, non-human and human intimacies in a way that I would not have thought if not for that piece of writing. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, both require a certain agility and open-mindedness uh, when approaching uh, the world, when approaching um, sort of experiences. And 
so at, at that level, they are very, very similar. Mm -hmm. I think when people say that they're incompatible, they are talking about the more formulaic as aspects of that writing. So, you know, uh, academic writing typically will have a claim and mm -hmm. then we prove the claim, something of that sort. Um, and, uh, you know, creative writing is supposed to be, at least in uh, the institutionalized version of creative writing in America, mm -hmm. is meant to be um, something that that is very... Um, simple or minimalist on the surface that does not and I put this in like quotes because I'm suspicious of it uh, creative writing is not supposed to be very intellectual apparently because uh, you don't want to uh, uh, you know make your prose too dense you will lose readers but these are all um, sort of cliches and and maybe not even um, not even things that um that are borne out by particular pieces of great writing, uh, whether in the creative or the critical mode. Um, there are great pieces of literary criticism that do not fall into the template of argument and evidence. Mm -hmm. There are great pieces of creative writing that are full of intellectual insights. So um, so I think they, they are compatible when you think of them that way. Thank you so much. That's fascinating. So let's jump right into your book. So can you Tell us a little bit about your book, Out of Mind. If you were to, say, identify two major, major interventions of this book, what would they be? Hmm. So uh, Out of Mind is a book about the relationship between contemporary aesthetic and contemporary scientific approaches to the mind. I offer an overview of some of the innovative literary techniques, specifically multimodal designs used in 21st century fictions like, say, Kamila Shamsi's cartography, Lance Olson's theories of forgetting, Stephen Hall's Rorschach texts. Um, so, you know, these techniques used in 21st century fictions that are mainly used in uh, in these texts to represent sensory perception, spatial knowledge, aspects of remembering and forgetting. I connect these literary techniques with cognitive, scientific, and philosophical debates about how minds work. My argument is that stories not only reflect historically contingent beliefs about cognition, but also participate in their reappraisal. My book thus underlines the vital role of stories in mediating and changing what it means to think, know, and mm -hmm. feel amid uh, 21st century social and environmental developments. Um, so now coming to the question of interventions, I think the first major intervention of my book is that through literary analysis, I show how narrative strategies of thought representation and various cognitive scientific frameworks semi-autonomously co-emerge in the aftermath of cultural and technological shifts. And I will elaborate a little bit more on that idea of co-emergence. When I was first in introduced to cognitive studies by Professor David Herman, um, when I was a grad student at Ohio State University, I found that narrative theory was, to a certain extent, preoccupied with what seemed universal, objective, and transferable about consciousness represented in literature. Issues of aesthetic complexity inherent in rendering consciousness in art was treated as somewhat secondary to speculating about the workings of actual minds, the minds of readers. And sometimes current scientific vocabulary would be used to talk about characters from earlier historical periods, critics were diagnosing characters from earlier historical periods as, uh, you know, um, autists and whatnot. Uh, the method of speculating about readers' minds based on literary representation requires not only a degree of abstraction, but also the assumption that literary minds and characters channel the knowledge that is out there somewhere about actual minds. Mm -hmm. I wanted to push against this trend of thinking. So out of mind, resist the impulse in cognitive literary studies to treat narratives as data sets for inferring how we think in a historical and universalist ways. Um, 
In Extent Cognitive Literary Criticism, I find an archive of how we, cognitive literary critics, might think about thinking influenced by theoretical positions in contemporary sciences of the mind. The dialogue between literary criticism and contemporary sciences is productive, but I think I'm critical of works in cognitive literary criticism that seem to convey the impression that study of literary minds needs to share cognitive sciences explanatory goals. Mm -hmm. I think that cognitive literary criticism can valuably exploit literary studies, uh, studies long-standing interest in historical and cultural contingencies to reevaluate extradisciplinary debates about cognition. Mm -hmm. So instead of regarding the relationship of cognitive theories with literary representations as one of reflection and imitation, it would be more useful, I think, to understand literary strategies and cognitive scientific frameworks as, as I said, semi-autonomously co-emerging. Uh, in other words, what we mean by thought and the actions that we perceive as constituting thinking change over time. And these changes become manifest in analogs and metaphors that co-emerge across domains of knowledge and aesthetic constructions. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, all of these domains of knowledge have their own logics, biases, methods, and so on. Um, but the the major intervention that I'm talking about is essentially, um, you know, that out of mind takes this logic of semi-autonomous co-emergence as its mm -hmm. axis, as it tries to bring together cognitive science and literary criticism. Mm -hmm. um, like using a framework such as that, for example, we can easily say and anticipate that over the next few years, given the excitement around large language models and platforms like ChatGPT, we will see increased scientific and literary commentary on the intersections of generative artificial intelligence with the notion of creativity. And literature will actively participate in the appraisal of what it means to create and not simply follow or reflect what's out there in the world of tech. Mm -hmm. Um, the second major of an intervention of the book has to do with how I interpret multimodality or the presence mm -hmm. of multiple semiotic modes, pictures, mm -hmm. maps, etc. in contemporary narratives mm -hmm. that are also thematically concerned with the nature of consciousness. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's obvious that multimodality is supposed to signal divergent or non-normative thinking in these texts. But what are the sources of particular texts' understanding of normative and non-normative and how we can reverse engineer and learn those assumptions, as well as challenge the stigma um, labels of non-normativity bring with them? That's what I discuss in the book. And that is, I guess, the second major intervention. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful and fascinating. So I, I do have another follow-up question about this partnership between cognitive theory and literary studies. Uh, and, and we'll talk more about uh, cognitive theory and your approach to it in, in, in a question that'll follow later. But uh, since you already bring up this partnership, uh, uh, I mean, again, uh, as you say that this relationship is one that is quite fragile uh, and, and, and both fields are famously suspicious of each other in the sense that cognitive theory feels that 
literary criticism is often way too parochial and bordering on cultural essentialism, whereas literary critics often blame cognitivists as too universalizing uh, uh, and, and forgetting about the importance of cultural particularity and difference, right? So it's clear that you are navigating this kind of a double bind in your book. Can you speak a little about this? I mean, how are you navigating these two fundamentally like distinct positions while trying to like create a bridge between them, you know? That's an excellent question. And it's a question I thought about a lot while I was writing the book and also later on. I think what's fascinating about cognitive studies or cognitive sciences and specific approach to literature is that um, cognitive scientists may criticize literature for its parochialism, but the fact is a lot of um, their language around how minds work and how they explain things depend on metaphors and metaphors that are both found in literary texts. In some cases, uh, like there is this neuroscientist uh, who studies uh, Jorge Luis Borges's writing to understand how you know memory works, for example. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think it is almost a disciplinary um, demand placed on scientists, perhaps, to produce knowledge that um, that have to explain truth or the world as it is in a way that is not always historical. So, you know, somebody working on memory today um, unless they are taking a kind of cultural framework into account, which, by the way, some, you know, cognitive scientists do. Um, if they're not taking that cultural framework, then when they talk about memory, they're going to talk about it in universalizing ways because um, they are supposed to produce truth about life and existence uh, just a little more generally um, rather than localize it to, okay, uh, you know, what we are studying as memory is memory in the 21st century or something like that. And in as much as we might say that is the idea of memory in 21st century that different from 19th century. The fact also is that because of environmental, technological, and social changes, um, the idea of memory is not static either, right? And so um, we cannot exactly point to the degrees of changes over uh, small periods of time, but it would also be wrong to say that nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. um, like a good example would be um, there. there is a lot of discourse around the idea of attention today, right? That, you know, we say that we are not paying enough attention or digital media has gotten in the way of how we attend to things. Mm -hmm. um, and what I think about is it's one thing to say that, oh, our attention is becoming deficient, quite another to uh, reframe our understanding of attention itself and realize that what is required of attention, what we mean by attention or think of attention is contingent on uh, our particular historical moment where we are juggling a bunch of, you know, smartphones with mm -hmm. tablets and computers and all of these different things. Mm -hmm. So uh, so in that sense, I do think that the criticism of a cultural uh, insularity or uh, not insularity, like essentialism that is brought by cognitive uh, scientists to literature is a little bit of a misdirection because... Mm -hmm. Um, it just doesn't apply in that sense. And I think the literature suspicion of cognitive science, I do get to a certain degree because, um, you know, the universalizing language of science um, and also scientific methods of knowledge production does not always seem in line and in sync with literary modes. Um, and uh, at the same time, I do think that we cannot pretend that we live in a world where these modes of knowledge production do not exist, or we can uh, just say that, oh, you know, we don't need to bother about it. Uh, like mm -hmm. going back to the example of generative artificial intelligence, um, 
you know, it's one thing to worry about whether chat GPT, like how, uh, you know, our idea of plagiarism in class is going to be affected because of that. That's, a, that's to me at least, a very localized form of concern. But I mm-hmm. think the bigger concern or the more philosophical concern is what something like chat GPT does to the idea of creativity. And when we um, teach or assess creativity, what exactly are we assessing and things like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, we cannot pretend that what's happening in the world of science or tech and all of these different things um, have no bearing uh, in the way we teach or uh, bearing in the way we um, understand our field. Um, so it is important to kind of articulate and um, engage with these ideas. Um, and in, in my book, I very much question the universalizing impulse and mm-hmm. try to shift the axis where I can of, mm-hmm. you know, where this uh, idea of universality, like the coordinates of the idea of universality. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the literary focus of your book. So uh, could you talk a little about what kinds of literatures are you drawing attention to in your book? Um, are they uh, are they coming from different genres? Um, and and uh, are you thinking about genres in a particular way? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I, I think I'm thinking of genres um, at the intersection of theme and form. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think that um, at some level in the popular uh, scheme of things, uh, when people talk about genres, they are talking about uh a theme that is born out by the form in a particular way that is expected. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we come to call literary fiction um, is actually not a particular genre at all. It is usually a combination of different genres Mm -hmm. or uh, a a narrative form that takes a lot from various genres, but then does not fulfill the expectations of those genres. Um, Now, the text that I uh, have worked with in Out of Mind they can broadly be thought of as literary fiction, of course, but they're also a particular kind of literary fiction. Um, they are experimental in mm-hmm. in the way they, um, you know, uh, in the way they shape their narratives. Um, and at the same time, they have a thematic interest in theories and philosophies related to consciousness. So, um, so they are a kind of philosophical literature um mm-hmm. but then again their philosophical literature that also are very inventive at a formal level um and include various modes and media and uh the reason i'm interested in this is because um in order to produce knowledge about consciousness and mind, philosophers and scientists have, as I was saying earlier, always relied on uh, various uh, modes and media. If you think of Aristotle's tabula rasa mm-hmm. or Alan Turing's and you know other uh, scientists' versions of computational minds. So the narratives that I study in Out of Mind uh, were all composed in an era that was dominated by excitement around computing and classical computing. Um, And the impact of this excitement is very palpable on their approaches to thought, on the narrative's approaches to thought. Um, And these narratives also include earlier metaphors, like metaphors of, say, memory as archive or the idea of mental map metaphors that were around well before the emergence of classical computing but then these narratives also materially incorporate some of these modes and media within the book instead of just Mm -hmm. alluding to them through language and that Mm -hmm. is significant to me because the material presence of the dominant figures that are so frequently invoked in analogies and metaphors explaining thought, I think defamiliarizes these figures uh, and directs us, the readers, to recognize the technological and cultural forces behind widely accepted truisms about the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, 
at the same time, of course, you know, uh, my overall position is that literary narratives are not composed to simply communicate knowledge about cognition or convince readers of the validity of cognitive scientific or philosophical theories. Uh, literature is not exactly a vehicle for science communication. Um, so, uh, you know, even when they're portraying how minds work, they do it creatively. And um, again, sometimes they do it in ways that are uh, that can even be opposed to contemporary beliefs around the mind, uh, or they hint at unresolved issues and ideas. And this is what interests me uh, to see the extent to which they um, both think with the sciences, but also uh, beyond, um, you know, what is accepted at a scientific or philosophical level at a present moment. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Uh, so these literary works, um, are they coming from like different sociocultural contexts or uh, what kind of stories are you drawing attention to um, in trying to accomplish these broader goals? Can you talk a little, little about that? Sure. So um, they are all, the ones that I studied closely and out of mind. They are all um, stories that were published in the US and UK. Um, and that was a little bit on purpose, because even when I'm talking about cognitive sciences and scientific frameworks or discourses around the mind, I'm very conscious about a lot of these uh, originating in um, the English-speaking world, and particularly uh, US and UK. And so to me, it felt, uh, you know, it, it, it's not the right framework to use if I were to study narratives originating out you know, outside of these um, cultural contexts. And, but having said that, I think each chapter of Out of Mind um, also thinks about um, particular issues that are really urgent in the 21st century. Um, so, you know, um, I think about climate change, about um, Asperger's and representations of mental disabilities. Um, I think about um, sort of uh, spatial cognition in the context of migration. Um, so these issues and my selection or method of selection has always been um, issue oriented rather than trying to pinpoint that, uh, you know, this novelist I'll choose because they are uh, representatives of this and this community. So I don't start with the identities of the writers as much as I study the themes or uh, sort of the preoccupations of um, the particular texts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I have both uh, Kamila Shamsi and Alexander Hammond uh, and their books who are uh, that are talking about um, migration and movement and shared subjectivity, um, even though Kamila Shamsi is writing it about um, characters whose uh, origins are in South Asia versus um, uh, Alexander Hemen, who is uh, talking about Bosnia, for example, mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, the immigrants in Chicago and so on. So, um, so it's a you can say it as a comparativist to a certain extent. Um, and um, the focus is around ideas and histories of ideas um, rather than um, sort of uh, the subject positions of the writers necessarily. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. That's fascinating. So uh, let's return a little bit to uh, the question on your, your, your thoughts on literary cognitivism. I mean, you use a cognitive framework to think about questions of narratology, textuality, interdisciplinarity, uh, politics, uh, habits of reading. Uh, so um, can you talk a little about how you are using this con uh, co uh, cognitive framework to do all this and, and, and the kind of novelty of this work? Um yeah, so I think of cognitive uh, literary studies um, as uh, a group of approaches that try to better understand and describe the relationship of thought, perception, emotion, as well as meta discourses or theories uh, about thought, perception, emotions um, with literary arts. Mm -hmm. and 
Now, the desire to understand thought and its relation with literature is not novel or restricted to cognitive studies. And not all cultural or literary critics studying this relationship necessarily considers themselves to be part of the field of literary uh, cognitive studies. Um, in fact, for a long time, and perhaps even now, criticism in the psychoanalytic vein also attempts to think about mind and literature um, uh, together. To me, thus, cognitive studies has a somewhat historically specific or at least like historically informed connotation. Many of these approaches uh, that we call cognitive studies work with or explicitly against conceptions of mind and thinking popularized in the cognitive sciences and interdisciplinary field originating in mid 20th century. An early preoccupation of the cognitive sciences was to model artificial intelligence after the human mind. Um, over the years, the cognitive sciences have focused on a range of other issues, including the nature of aesthetic experiences and social cognition, um, its origins in, um, in research on artificial intelligence, I think is really important whenever we engage with the field of cognitive science. Um, my own interest in cognitive studies is tied to my interest first and foremost in aesthetic objects and experiences, mm -hmm. their forms and content. I, as a student, I was intrigued by works of literary scholars who in conversation with the cognitive sciences and philosophy of mind made speculative but persuasive comments about how we read, experience narratives and all of these. I did, however, uh, have an uneasy relationship with um, this hypothetical figure of the reader that would turn up in a lot of cognitive literary studies. Um, this was because of the normative assumptions about this figure, um, like say a critique uh, writing about a character who the story implicitly or explicitly identifies as someone with cognitive difference or disability, the critic would like read that character and then discuss how a hypothetical reader would respond to the character. But the assumption the critic was making, which was not always on the surface, is that the reader could not and would not share the character's cognitive state or condition. In other words, the assumption always was that the hypothetical reader is this normative figure who mm -hmm. is certainly modeled after the critic mm -hmm. because you know the, the critic was using, even if they were not saying that, they were thinking of themselves as kind of this axis of normativity. And then, you know, the character uh, is the non-normative one. So how does a normative mind read a non-normative mind? Like this would turn up quite often. I was very uneasy around this. And um, therefore, I became interested in the intellectual history of cognitive models, um, how we think about thinking and how stories participate in this intellectual history as well as how those of us who study stories are actively shaping this intellectual history. So, you know, that's kind of my uh, pathway into uh, cognitive literary studies. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so speaking of how we consume a text, I think it's now worth spending some time on the idea of multimodality, mm -hmm. which seems to be a major focus of your your book. So can you talk about it um, in terms of how you define it, approach it in relation to the broader goal of your book, which is 
to rethink the way we think about thinking, right? So um, how are you interrogating its presence and utilization in literature? Right. So um, uh, just to talk about the definition at the outset, uh, you know, in multimodality studies, there's uh, uh, there are a lot of unresolved debates about what exactly is multimodality. For the purposes of my own research, um, I have approached texts, narratives that use um, semiotic modes uh, or sign systems uh, that are, um, you know, that are beyond language or, you know, that use a combination of language, but also something like images or um, something like um, maps, as I said, um, as multimodal in the sense that they have more than one semiotic mode of communication. Um, I, I would acknowledge, though, that no literary text or no text can be completely monomodal either, um, mm. because even if it's just, you know, words, um, we still bring in experiences across the world, which is multimodal to bear upon the text. But um, the kind of multimodality that I'm interested in is a bit of this self-reflexive multimodality of narratives where um, they not only signal other modes, but also incorporate other modes in the storytelling. Um, so I'm interested in questions like, you know, what does it mean? to um, have a metaphor that is visual or that like has a visual ring to it versus a picture um, that is sketched uh, mm. and a picture that is a photograph, right? Like it's the visual mode in a certain sense, but then the sign systems are different and uh, what does it do to the story um, and why these get incorporated in stories? Because each of these modes also have philosophical histories like photography, from uh, the late 19th century onward has been um, sort of at the center of a lot of theorizing about the nature of perception. Mm -hmm. so, um, so then like is photography as a mode, uh, like what what is it about that mode that makes it especially useful when thinking about perception and memory uh, as opposed to say painting um, mm -hmm. and so on. So. So these are the kinds of questions I am interested in when I'm thinking about and defining multimodality. Um, but at a, at a certain level, I do think that multimodality actually celebrates some of the underutilized design features that have always been afforded by um, the book as a media platform. Mm -hmm. um, because the multimodality that I talk about in Out of Mind is uh, essentially coming to us in book form. So none of them are um, like, uh, you know, narratives that are uh, expected to be consumed digitally. Um, mm -hmm. Most of them have like a print aspect to them. So um, my arguments in the book concentrate on narratives that use multimodal devices um, to... Um, uh, you know, to speculate and explore themes around the, the history of ideas having to do with thinking. And um, the publishing trajectory of such narratives offers some insights into why they may combine a thematic interest in cognition and perception with <clears throat> formal experiments in um, sort of the semiotic uh, multiplicity. Uh, you know, historically, um, if we look at book history and so on, uh, beliefs about readers' minds, the span of their attention, distraction, memory, have played a huge role in guiding not only writers, but also publishers' approaches to uh, multimodality. Even today, uh, you will colloquially hear that um, like readers' attention has decreased, and so it's better to write stories or like print stuff that's shorter, maybe you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you know, th these assumptions have always been around, and uh, if uh, we look at the history of Tristram Shandy, for example, mm -hmm. it's a you know, a book that was multimodal that still is multimodal, but uh, Tristram Shandy was actually like when it was first published, it was supposed to have 
some color pages and so on. Um, and uh, But at the same time, when it, the book continued to be printed over the centuries, some of its typographic idiosyncrasies and uh, you know features were removed because publishers thought <clears throat> those features just increased the cost of production maybe and did not do enough for the narrative. So, uh, and that is uh, related to some um, some sort of uh, figures in the publishing uh, thinking about typography as something that was meant to be transparent or at least like non-obtrusive. So Beatrice Ward, who was considered an expert on typography in the first half of the 20th century, um, had the opinion that the most important thing about printing is that it conveys thoughts, ideas, images from one mind to other minds. Um, so the, the focus was on making the print as non-obtrusive so that people could like directly, I guess, um, consume literature and have it imprinted on their mind, so to speak. So uh, a, a distinction between the mind and body, the dichotomy that is very much part of, um, you know, a lot of commonsensical discussions around literature too. So, um, Multimodality kind of pushes against that because multimodality tries to remind us that, you know, uh, reading is not simply a mental act activity. Senses are involved and sensory perceptions and assumptions and a lot of these, like the materiality of literature becomes very apparent in multimodality. Um, so that's why uh, multimodality has intrigued me and has been particularly useful for my particular project that is interested in cognition, perception, um, and so on. That is great. Uh, wonderful. So. Um... I do want to end this interview with a more general question. So uh, the field of humanities and literary studies is currently under threat, both in the U.S. and beyond. Um, so, I mean, and, and we know that through, like, uh, as we witnessed the cutting of humanities and literature programs uh, through censorship and, and through all kinds of like pushback against um, the kind of ad ad advocacy for humanities mm -hmm. curriculum, right? So, so keeping this in mind, can you discuss how does your book your research, your creative writing advocate for the humanities? and the literary studies as a discipline? Why must we preserve it? Why must we protect it? And why must we defend it? A very important question and one that is always so difficult to answer. Um, I think in the context of out of mind in specific, the argument of the book around semi-autonomous co-emergence um, itself is a kind of defense because it stresses that Story, storytelling, and those of us who study storytelling uh, fundamentally shape and learn about the intellectual history around um, ideas like intelligence, creativity, thinking, I mean, ideas that are so fundamental to any kind of scientific and technological development as well. Um, and I, I do think you need literary and humanities scholars to think about um, not only what, you know, where technology is headed, but also the implications and consequences of, um, you know, narratives that develop around certain changes happening in the world. So, you know, you have generative AI, sure, but what kind of cultural narrative is being built and by whom? Because a lot of really important um, and uh, paradigm shifting kind of tech innovations um, are necessarily uh, coming out of uh, heavy corporate machinery. And so there is a lot of like corporate PR all the time around um, these uh, developments. And unless you have or you bring uh, the very basic humanities uh, method of 
close reading some of this, uh, you know, uh, cultural narrative, and even something that uh, in the humanities classroom or literary studies classroom we call reading against the grain. It's mm -hmm. it's so fundamental to us, but uh, it's not as fundamental in a lot of other disciplines. The fact that we are suspicious readers can actually be uh, really helpful in a cultural climate where um, corporates try to dominate what story is being told and, um, uh, you know, and to not think enough about ethical issues. Um, so, uh, so our skills of close reading and uh, reading against the grain, the grain even suspicious reading, um, can be very uh, crucial and are very crucial in parsing cultural narratives, whether that's around um, artificial intelligence or something like climate change. Um, and um, I think in Out of Mind, by putting the aesthetic, the scientific, technological, and the social in dialogue with one another, um, I try to make a case for approaching conversations around cognition um, through a route that does not let technology dominate the conversation. Um, so I think those are some of the some of the sort of direct arguments out of mind is making about the role or importance of literary studies humanities. My creative writing, uh, even when I, I, I focus on my in my creative writing, especially in fiction writing, is entertainment or pleasure. Um, I do think that. Uh, the most moving pieces of literature, or and to me, that's the most pleasurable pieces of literature, um, definitely uh, reorient the way we think about um, the culture and uh, also back in critiques of culture. Um, and so uh, I think to that extent, uh, creative writing um, can be really useful to uh, sort of see the culture from another angle and also challenge some of the uh, prevalent and dominating ideas in culture. So, uh, so in that sense, creative writing too is part of this overall project of um, seeing the world, approaching the world through the lens of uh, literary studies and humanities. Thank you so much, Dorsha. Uh, I mean, this was wonderful and I'm so glad that you made time to come speak with us. Um, I learned a lot from reading your book and talking to you, and I'm sure our listeners would learn a lot from this conversation and from uh, your book as well. So again, so much gratitude for your being here. Thank you so much, Arnav, for having me. Um, your questions made me think about um, my book and reflect on my own methods. And that's always so useful and so valuable. Thank you so much.